On the show today, Jerry Lynn Baumblatt, Executive Director of Patient Engagement at EMI, interviews Quentin Robertson, Clinical Nurse Manager for the Supportive Medicine Program at the Memorial Hermann System. Jerry will also talk with Julie Goldstein, Palliative Care Physician at Advocate Healthcare. They'll discuss apprehensions surrounding palliative care and how terminology and communication can impact advanced care conversations. I'm your host, Kendall Antikyer, and you're listening to Bottom Line Radio. Welcome to Bottom Line Radio, Emmy's podcast on everything patient engagement. I'm Jerry Lynn Baumblatt, and joining me is Quentin Robertson and Julie Goldstein. Let's get started with you, Quentin. When it comes to palliative care, we know that patients would prefer to have conversations with their providers, but one study showed 88% of patients had completed advanced directives without the input of their physicians. So this disconnect between patients and providers seems emblematic of the hesitation that exists around palliative care. Yes, Jerry, it it still stands that uh, palliative medicine has been around for a while, but yet still there is some some fear as relates to supportive medicine or palliative medicine, as relates to um, the education of it, as relates to the concept of it, and really whether or not whether or not physicians or even patients are really aware of what supportive medicine or palliative medicine does and how we can be an attribute for the team. Mm-hmm. What is that fear driven by? There seems to be a lot of apprehension just from the terminology of palliative care and misunderstandings about what palliative care as a term even means. Exactly. I explain supportive medicine. I always say any age, any stage. Um, it doesn't matter if you're at the end of life, but we would like to have you uh, on services if you're uh, receiving care and you want to continue to receive care no matter what. So supportive medicine is exactly what it is. It gives opportunity for us to join the patient early in diagnosis and whether they deciding to continue uh, certain treatments, uh, we'll be there. That's really interesting. I also know you led a rebranding effort to address the misunderstanding and apprehension. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes, what we did in Houston, we, we looked at the idea that words mean something. And so from that uh, decision, we did a survey with physicians and we just asked them, how does the word palliative make you feel? What are your thoughts? So many physicians feel that uh, it's still end-of-life care. Uh, some physicians uh, looked at it as though we were uh, taking an opportunity to uh, take care of their patients. Um, and so we really wanted to address those concerns. So what we decided to do after that survey was to change or rebrand for our purposes at our facilities from the word palliative medicine, which is still the same, but we transitioned to the word supportive medicine. And what that gave the idea was that, hey, we're here to support you as a physician. We're here to support the family. And it just literally, as we're talking about it now, there's being a paradigm shift. Uh, Since we did that, um, our consults have increased by 20%. Did the program involve any physician education? Yes, education is always going, um, and there's always opportunity for education. But with just the idea of rebranding and changing um, that name, it gets us closer 
to the physician. It gets us closer to the patient. So that drives a stronger notion of partnership, which is the original intention, not just someone coming in to take over patient conversations. Exactly. Our goal, and I'm sure that everyone knows our purpose is not to take over any care, but we're joining and collaborating Mm -hmm. for that holistic picture for that patient. Mm -hmm. And if we can uh, have family talks and goals of care addressed, what normally takes maybe an hour, we can allocate that time to do that. Mm -hmm. And that helps that physician to move uh, around to continue to see other patients, knowing that we will follow up with him or her and give them an update. Is there anything we can do, whether building tools or addressing terminology that can help? Yes, I I think that um, there's always room for new communication tools. Um, As we all know, anytime there's a breakdown in communication, there's usually a breakdown in care. Mm -hmm. So I would think that if you, uh, as a company, continue to create uh, assessment tools or communication tools, that will make uh, this translation of practice a little easier for the physician, the clinical clinicians, as well as the patient. I think that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. And to piggyback on that, I'd like to get Julie's input. Julie, you said a lot of the sessions at the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine Annual Assembly this year discussed communication. What are a few of the major themes that were discussed there and what resonated with you most? I would say that two of the um, big themes that have really popped out for me on the storytelling, but also the story gathering, because that's what we're doing when we're at our best in this field. We're helping people create uh, and, and sort of transmit their stories. And then the other big piece that has um, really uh, been socked in for me more so this year than ever before is the whole concept of unconscious bias mm-hmm. and how um, how wired we are from a very early age in our early experiences to biases that, although they may seem sort of small in 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 the sort of big personal picture, uh, they can actually drive us to say even little things that trigger people and our patients in ways that aren't productive. Absolutely. I know from helping with the creation of our palliative care ME program that it can be really difficult to eliminate that kind of bias. Certainly, uh, when you're sitting down face-to-face with, as a provider with, with a patient, there's already a, a dialogue that's going on uh, before either of you even open your mouth with your body language, with the stuff that the stuff including unconscious bias that's in your head, and the stuff including the unconscious bias that's in the other person's head, and your fears and your worries and your concerns with looking good and not looking bad. There's this, all of this energy and and you know internal dialogue um, before anybody opens their mouth. And how does all of that impact the moment when? You're, you're introducing the possibility of, for example, for, of advanced care planning. Right. And what being able to sit in front of a, a computer program that's interactive enough that it feels a, a little like a human touch, mm-hmm. um, but allows the person to have their own sort of thought process and um, sort of sort through that by themselves without being distracted by the, the other person is actually a really awesome opportunity to prime a, a person for having an advanced care planning conversation. 
Yeah, and that's definitely the intention of our programs, not just to inform, but to drive people to take time to watch, view it with family, talk about it, and then meet with their provider to discuss it as well. So everyone's really on the same page. Well, I'm really glad I got to speak with both of you today, and it looks like the bottom line for this conversation is that we need improved communication to remove barriers around advanced care conversations. Great insights today from Jalen Boblat, Quentin Robertson, and Julie Goldstein. Don't miss out on future shows. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast at the bottom of the page. And if you're interested in learning more on this topic, you can view our webinar featuring Dr. Ira Bayak and Dr. Sherry Kittleson as they discuss how to turn difficult conversations into clinical opportunities. I'm Kendall Anakire. Thanks for listening to Bottom Line Radio. Thank you.